In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, amen. Welcome, everyone. Um, happy you guys are all able to attend what should be a really interesting series. Um, we, we could have brought, you know, uh, very famous guest speakers like bishops and popes and things like that. But instead, we're using some of the amazing talent we have in our own church. Uh, with some of the amazing servants. Um, I was actually not uh, going to speak tonight at all. I was going to allow the servants to do it, but then we had a cancellation. So I am stepping in just to, for the first meeting, but hopefully after that, you'll uh, hear better speakers than me with our amazing servants um, who do a great job. So this is about the Catholic epistles, the universal or general epistles. Um, please read the epistles before the talk. Uh, it's super easy. These are very short uh, epistles and uh, very easy to read and very beautiful. Um, they're amazing. And so if you could just read them before, ideally it'd be good to read it before and then read it after the talk and maybe you'll read it with uh, a fresh perspective. Um, but at least read it before so that you can uh, maybe ask questions or contribute to the discussion as well. So uh, just keep that in mind, super easy to do. Hopefully this will encourage you to, to read these and have a, a better understanding of the epistles, uh, the Catholic epistles. So just as a very quick overview of the New Testament, uh, and I know you guys are all familiar with this, of course. So we have four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are called the synoptic gospels. Then we have the gospel of St. John. And then we have the book of St. Luke, um, uh, book of Acts. And then we have the 14 uh, Pauline epistles. And then we have what we're going to be discussing over the next couple of weeks, which is the general or Catholic epistles, James, Jude, 1st and 2nd Peter, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then, of course, the Revelation of John. So when you look at this, what's really interesting is that we only have seven individuals who wrote the whole New Testament. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Jude, Peter, and of course, St. Paul. Uh, three of them were of the 12 disciples, Matthew, John, and Peter. Uh, Matthew wrote one of the Gospels. John wrote one of the Gospels, three epistles, which are part of the Catholic epistles. And of course, the book of Revelations. And St. Peter, also Catholic epistles, he wrote two epistles. And uh, four of the 70 apostles wrote uh, Mark, Luke, both wrote a gospel, and Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts. And then you have Jude and James as part of the Catholic epistles. And then you have what are called the Pauline epistles, the 14 epistles. So we only have seven individuals who make up the whole New Testament writings. So the Catholic epistles are the seven epistles near the end of the New Testament before the final book of Revelations. Um, the epistles of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. So just these four individuals comprise the uh, all of the Catholic epistles. I know this is basic, but just uh, to give us perspective uh, as we approach this. Uh, they're applied to the general audience. So in, uh, unlike, for example, St. Paul, who wrote to the Galatians or to the Romans or to the Ephesians or to Philemon, 
these are written, um, uh, they could be applied to a general audience and not to a specific geographic region or person. That's why they're called the Catholic or universal or general epistles. Of course, though, like any of the books of the uh, Bible, Old or New Testament, they're applied to everyone, all of the believers. It applies to us all because every page of the Bible points to our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that is relevant to every human being that's alive. So the epistle of St. Uh, James is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, we're, it's only five chapters, pretty small epistle, as all of the Catholic epistles are. They're pretty small. Uh, the It was written by St. James, the brother of Jesus. There is some debate, as you'll discover maybe in our future talks. There's a debate, especially with modern scholarship, as to who wrote the uh, these writings of the New Testament. And that's totally okay, right? We're open to those kind of discussions. But generally speaking, we'll let everyone know that the person who was generally accepted through church uh, history and some of the church fathers uh, is St. James, the brother of Jesus. So uh, when we say the brother of Jesus, of course, uh, we, we don't mean uh, one of the sons of St. Mary because St. Mary only had Jesus Christ. She was perpetually virgin. But um, I've, you know, there's two theories that are out there on who these brothers of Jesus were. Uh, they were either the cousins of Jesus because uh, St. Joseph had a previous marriage in which he had children. He was pretty old when he married St. Mary. And so these are the brothers, uh, the stepbrothers of Jesus. Uh, I've also heard uh, commentaries where um, the, these brothers of Jesus are his cousins, uh, the son of another Mary. And so uh, oftentimes cousins or other relatives are called brothers. For example, Abraham, uh, when he went to go save Lot, uh, they called it, they called him his brother. And even though he was his nephew. So um, people of close relations are oftentimes called brothers. Nevertheless, uh, the church generally accepts that it was St. James, one of those brothers of Jesus. Uh, he presided over the Council of Jerusalem. He was the first, basically, the first patriarch of Jerusalem, the first bishop of Jerusalem. He presided over the council uh, that handled the issue of uh, the, um, the, the, how do you deal with the pagan converts who come into the faith? And we discussed that at length when we, when, when we reviewed the book of Acts together a few months ago. Uh, he was called James the Just or the Righteous. Everyone knew that he was a just and righteous person, even those who, uh, like the, the Jews of the time who opposed him, even they called him Saint J uh, James the Just. He was also called a pillar of the church by St. Paul in Galatians chapter 2, uh, one of the three pillars of the church. So it's written around the year 60 AD. We know it's written before the destruction of Jerusalem, around 70 AD. So it's written before that. Um, so they're, they're saying around 60 AD or so. Uh, he writes the, the epistle to the Jews of the, the diaspora. So back then, um, there were Jews, there were Greek-speaking Jews that lived all over the, the uh, Roman Empire at the time, from Greece to Alexandria, had a big population, um, and through Asia Minor, and also in Italy as well. So he writes these to these, uh, these um, Jewish Christians all over the world. Uh, they were suffering. These people, these converts were suffering persecution. Uh, they were suffering from, from poverty. They were suffering from uh, divisions in their community. So they had a lot of trials and tribulations that they were going through. He writes the epistle in Greek, 
And St. James, uh, we know at the end of his life, was thrown off one of the pillars of the temple. And uh, as he was almost dead, they finished him off by beating him uh, once he was fallen off. So he therefore gained the crown of martyrdom. So the main points of the epistle of St. James is number one, to encourage the Christians to endure tribulation. And this is very applicable to all of us, of course, uh, to remain faithful and patient, to help others in difficult times, and to pray with faith and zeal uh, during these difficult times. That it, he, Another main point of the, gospel, of the epistle of St. James was that it wasn't enough to just be a hearer of the Christian message, but a doer of the Christian message the importance of faith versus works. And we'll talk about uh, how Martin Luther uh, viewed the epistle of St. James. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, the one who started Protestantism. How did he view uh, some of these, what appear to be conflicting, uh, you know, doctrines of, uh, between his doctrines and what's, what's in the epistle of St. James. Uh, to show mercy to others, to never show partiality in the church. Partiality is spoken of very strongly. To control the tongue, to have peace among others, to be giving. Uh, these are the things that he spoke about, all in the context of these Christians, these new Christians who were Jews before that are suffering, um, you know, that they should still uphold these Christian virtues. He gives very strong guidance uh, to the rich to give. Um, probably some of the strongest language you'll you'll see in the, in the Bible about giving uh, and how rich people should give and not to trust in their riches. Mentions the sacraments of the unction of the sick and also of confession as well. And so we'll read about that. So let's go through some of these points in detail. Uh, I didn't really organize the talk by chapters, but we do have references on some of the quotes that we'll read together on uh, where, where they're located. Any questions so far? So let's read about what St. James has to say about patience. Um, mute some uh, noises there. Okay. Great. Just a reminder to keep mute. Unless, of course, you have a question, you can unmute and just jump right in anytime. He opens in chapter one with James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, right away, you know, in verse two, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And then later on, he says, therefore, be patient in the last epistle. He says, therefore, after everything he's talked about, he says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So enduring uh, tribulation is one of the main themes of this epistle. You know, St. James starts with this epistle with a call to have patience. And we know that Jesus Christ himself says, in your patience, you possess your soul. 
Patience is a huge virtue in Christianity. In your patience, you possess your soul. But patience is often linked with understanding um, during tribulations. The two are linked. We tend to kind of lose patience when we are confused. When we're confused about something, we kind of get frustrated and we lose patience. God wants us to understand, but sometimes we're not mature enough to understand uh, and to bear the reality of the situation, especially as it relates to the mystery of suffering, the mystery of tribulation and trials. Those only like the mature Christians truly understand. Uh, so he bids us to ask for understanding, but to do so with faith, not to be double-minded, to be mature, and to approach with maturity, and therefore we will gain uh, all, all wisdom, because God wants us to understand, and he gives to us liberally, freely, without reproach. Uh, as when we ask for understanding, he gives it to us. But Jesus, as Jesus says, and uh, our Lord says in John chapter 16, I still have many things to say to you. I want to tell you so many mysteries. I want to reveal so many things to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. When the spirit of God is in tune with us and we're in touch with the Holy Spirit that's inside of us, God is eager to reveal all things to us. And I, you know, I just wonder what we will understand when we enter into the kingdom of God um, and we will continue to grow in understanding uh, even through eternity, because of course he's infinite and we will always grow and more and more about knowing who God is. He also says that during tribulation, we should be praying as well. Prayer is a big type of uh, consolation during prayer, uh, we receive solutions. We receive uh, a real effect in our everyday material, physical, natural world. Prayer impacts that world. It's not just something theoretical. It's not just something that gives us the warm and fuzzy feelings. It does, but it also truly does invite and invoke the name of Jesus Christ that is the world around us. And it shapes that natural, physical, tangible world around us. And as Christ, as uh, St. James says through the Holy Spirit, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It accomplishes a lot. But when faced with personal tribulations, sometimes we don't know what to pray for. And uh, when we look at, for example, studying the book of Job, we see that as a perfect example. We pray with a desire that's common to everyone, that, Lord, please remove this trial or tribulation or temptation away from me. But this might not be what is best for us. Sometimes God has granted us the, you know, this, this burden for our own spiritual benefit. And we see through many examples in the Bible that God sometimes requests, uh, you know, grants the request of many of the impatient people. Again, that word patience. Sometimes people are impatient and they ask for things and God gives it to them. And in his mercy, he denies it to others. Let's look at some of those examples. For example, um, he granted meat to the complaining Israelites in the desert, but they were corrected with the plagues, even with the meat still in their mouths. Uh, he granted them kings. Remember, the Israelites wanted a king just like all the other countries around them. 
And after rebuking them and, and saying, are you sure you want a king? A king's going to send you into war. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all these things. Um, are you sure you want a king? And they insisted to be like the other nations. And God granted it, right? He, you know, worked through Samuel and, and they, you know, anointed a king. And we know throughout the history of Israel, the like four or 500 years of kingship, uh, the kingdoms, only a handful, maybe two or three were righteous. And the Bible says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. The rest were corrupt. The rest were, you know, turned to idol worshiping or fornication or marrying uh, people outside of the faith. And so, you know, they really struggled with that. But God gave it to them because they asked for it. We know for on the flip side, St. Paul asked, uh, you know, St. Paul who made miracles, right, and healings. And he was caught up to the third heaven and saw visions that he couldn't even repeat. Um, when he asked for uh, healing of this wound that he had on his side, God responded, Christ responded saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he says, St. Paul says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So in this case, it was to St. Paul's benefit that this wound was not taken away from him. And so because of that, that wound remained, even though he was healing. And even that bandage that was um, on that wound was healing other people. So St. Augustine says that during these difficult times, like these people that St. James wrote to, there is, there is therefore in us a certain learned ignorance, so to speak. And he says, so to speak, because ignorance is a difficult word. But he says, you have to learn to kind of be ignorant. And ignorance, which we learn from that spirit of God who helps our infirmities. We don't know what's good for us sometimes. So we pray just like everyone else would pray that God remove the tribulations. But we always have to leave room for God's will to work because it's possible that we don't know what's best for us. Like in Romans chapter 8, it says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance, with patience. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we should be patient and leave room, of course, for God's will, even through difficult times, because we know God's promises to us. Christians should always be familiar with God's promises. Um, he foretold that many types of sufferings would be encountered by both Christians and non-Christians. He prepared for us wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilences, coronaviruses, uh, betrayal, injustice, things of that sort. He said these things would come, uh, especially in the last days. So we shouldn't be surprised. And we shouldn't be afraid of anything. But with patience, we should just endure it. And with faith, we should have faith in the house of faith and outside the house as well. As St. James says, we should be faithful and patient, asking for understanding, but leaving room for the will of God when we don't understand who works all for our benefit. We trust and we are patient that God will, of course, work everything to our benefit. Then he talks about putting faith into practice, especially during trials. You know, this is the contest. Now it's time 
for us to put our faith into practice. After speaking about the proper way to handle tribulations with patience, with faith, and with understanding, um, he's, he then says, uh, put your faith into action. After, you know, he says, during tribulations, trials, and temptations, focus on the things that are in our control, which is that things that we can decide in the present, in the here and now, here's what I can do to do what is right. And how do we treat each other? He also focuses on that. So put our faith into action by four things, you know, that he speaks about in his epistles. Giving, we should give to those in need, not just money, but of course money is part of it, but also, um, you know, our time, our effort, our attention, our our comfort to others, not to show partiality. Partiality in the church can do a lot of damage. Um, we've seen it, and we know that partiality is a terrible thing inside the church, so he warns against that. He also tells us to have mercy on others, and he spends a great deal of time throughout the epistles going back and forth, talking about our speech and, and how we should have corrected uh, words that we should say. So let's take, let's go over these four real quick. Faith versus works, right? And it's often, you often see that. Is it faith or is it works? And they'll put this little word versus in between, especially now with debates between Orthodox or Catholic or, or Protestant and, and Orthodox, uh, this issue of faith versus works. And I think that word versus is inappropriate to put there in context of the Christian life because the two are very linked together. They're joined together. They're both our response to the divine grace. God gives us grace freely, freely and without reproach, more than we can ever uh, imagine. Even, you know, we know we don't deserve even a, a little bit of the grace, but he gives us grace for grace. And on top of grace, he gives us more grace. Um, where we have to, though, and it's in our hands to respond to that grace. And we respond with faith and with works. Um, and we will be judged on our response with faith, and we will be judged on our response with works as well. Both are, are linked together. God accepts and justifies works that are done in faith, and faith working through love, as St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Let's read this, because I think it is relevant so that there is no confusion. Can I have a volunteer? Um, what does... It profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted for, to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot, harlot of, also justified by works when she received 
the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Very powerful, right? Thank you, Nancy. Very powerful writings. Um, there is a doctrine of the Protestants who believe that, um, and the various branches of Protestantism believe that uh, faith alone is sufficient. And they, they, uh, they emphasize the, the word alone, that faith alone is sufficient for salvation. This seems to be contradictory to what he says here, and not faith only, right? And so J Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Re Reformation, of course, right? Um, this was a pain in the neck, especially James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It was a pain in the neck for Martin Luther, who said, this is from him in his preface to the uh, German translation of the Bible. He says, James, the epistle of James is a strawy epistle. It's straw. It's made out of straw. It doesn't have content. No gospel character is in it. I will not have it in my Bible in the number of the proper, proper chief books. So basically, Martin Luther wanted to take out the book of James from the Bible because it obviously contradicted his Protestant uh, concept of faith alone. Um, everything he says in that statement is false. Uh, it is not a straw epistle. It's full of uh, in-depth, uh, you, know, uh, you know, beneficial, spiritual uh, moral, uh, doctrinal, uh, you know, writing in there. It's very powerful. Um, and and uh, it has much gospel character in it. He references and says many of the things on the Sermon of the Mount and the teachings of Jesus Christ um, that were mentioned in the gospels. Uh, so, you know, he just really struggled with this and wanted to take it out. Uh, in the end, he was unsuccessful. Um, but uh, it, it, op it openly contradicts his heretical concept of salvation by faith alone. That's nowhere in the, in the Bible. Faith alone is nowhere in the Bible. Uh, but, only in the epistle, but not only in the epistle of James. If we were to put aside the epistle of James and really focus on a really logical and, and uh, you know, discussion of this concept of faith alone, uh, you can really... Um, find it in the in the gospels you can find it in acts you can find it in all of the Pauline every epistle you can find you know enough support to really contradict their their doctrine of uh by faith alone it really doesn't hold water but um really saint james was the nail in the coffin and um he struggled with it and so you'll see modern uh theologians try to kind of fit a square peg in a round hole by trying to provide some sort of explanation as for what this means, but it really, when you look at the when the when you look at their explanation in context, it it, it does not fit within the whole epistle of Saint James, let alone the whole Bible or the the New Testament. Um, the next thing he focuses on is showing mercy to others uh, in time of trials. For judgment, he says, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, even if one has faith. What a beautiful sentence this is. And I'd love to read it again. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy overcomes judgment. When we are merciful to others, showing kindness and uh and love, just like Christ taught, that the weightier matters of the law is mercy and truth. 
um, that we overcome and we triumph over judgment, we'll pass over judgment. It's very relevant in today's time. I mean, I'll ask you the question, you don't really have to answer, but think about it. Is mercy now needed in our today's, in today's society, especially this year? Uh, we see so much harsh language. We see so much uh, merciless approach to, not to somebody who's really done anything wrong, but just simply because they have a differing opinion. Uh, there's no room for mercy or no room for yielding to someone else, let alone providing for somebody else. It's really a scary time to, uh, scary but not so scary, that, you know, it's, it's, it's sad more than anything to see humanity uh, with so little mercy um, in them. And I think in today's time, it's very relevant. But for us who are Christian, we know that mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, because if we don't show mercy, we're not, how can we expect to receive mercy from the Lord? Trials put us to the test uh, when it comes to mercy, whether like the, what's, this is a quote from St. Cyprian, whether they are, whether they who are in health tend to the sick, whether relations affectionately love their kindred, are we, are we gonna st strengthen our love and affection towards our uh, family and friends? whether employers pity their languishing employees or is there gonna be greed and just uh, you know, using them to the last uh, bit of effort, whether physicians do not forsake the sick patients, whether the fierce suppress their violence, whether the haughty bend their neck, whether the, like the arrogant will be humble, whether the wicked soften their boldness, Trials will put us to the test to see if we will respond in a proper way or respond with even hardening of hearts. The other thing he talks about too, and he uses very harsh language, and we often pray, the, um, read this in, in the gospel and in the Sunday readings, um, as well as other readings, uh, but mostly in the Sunday readings, we, you know, more than one Sunday throughout the year, we read this portion as a reminder to all of us, never to trust in riches. Our riches will uh, fail us. Our riches are temporary. And um, he says, you will find some, you know, you know, very harsh language in this towards the rich who are greedy, not just the rich, because there's some very just people who are rich, but the, the people who are rich through greediness, dishonesty, and that do not give or share to others. So let's read this. Uh, can I have a volunteer to read this as well? Listen, my beloved brother, um, has God not chosen the poor of his word to be rich in faith and, and enters of the kingdom, which be promised I'm sorry, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich um, oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not bless him? Um, that noble. noble name by which you are called. So not to interrupt you, Annie. So sure. you see here that he's laying the groundwork, right? That he's saying that, why are you giving favoritism to those rich people 
aren't these the same people who belittle and they try to use their money against you? They, they take you to the courts. They dishonor the poor man. They belittle your faith. Um, they, they oppress you. Uh, they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. Well, um, do not be a slave to them, but have a little bit of strength in front of them uh, that you are not going to, um, you know, show them that they have any power just because they have some money in the world. So he, he kind of frees people from this. And so it's uh, very powerful. Um, any other volunteers? Thank you, Henny. Okay. Sure, I can read. Okay, thank you. Come, uh, starting with four. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and your corrosion will be a witness against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So he's basically saying all those, uh, the, those efforts that you put into reaping up a, 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 a huge treasure by um, fraud, basically, by um, you know, uh, you know, all those people that you put to labor and their groanings have reached to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the, the Lord of heaven and the Lord of powers. And, you know, he hears everybody that, that they've oppressed uh, that to, to become, to make themselves rich. And this is very, you know, harsh language. Come now you rich weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth eaten. Very powerful uh, writings. He also talks about partiality. Uh, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are, are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Partiality in the church can be a very dangerous thing, you know, like um, especially for the youth who grow up seeing partiality, it really gives them um, like a, a disillusioned opinion about the church and about the faith in general. Uh, so it can really do a lot of damage. And so partiality inside the church should not, um, should not exist as God himself does not judge. And when you look, I'm not going to make you read this, but when you look at, for example, uh, some of the other verses, there are plenty. The Bible is very clear that partiality is not something that um, we should embrace, but something that we should reject immediately. Um, whether that be um, like, you know, if a church, uh, like, for example, as the example of St. James honors like rich people uh, over poor people. Or, for example, will honor uh, a certain race over another race. Um, 
or you know a certain language over another language. I'm not going to ask if you've ever seen partiality in your church, but think about it. If there is, if there ever have been, and the damage it's caused, and the impact it's had, even upon generations, um, it's a very dangerous thing, and it, it is something that we should avoid and try to correct as as much as possible. The other thing he talks about in the epistles that he focuses a lot on, and it's sprinkled throughout the epistles, is to control our speech. Uh, he gives three analogies of the tongue, you know, that tongue uh, that we all have that we talk with. Uh, he likens it to a rudder, a wild animal, and a fire. Um, he says, I'll just go ahead and read. Look also at the ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So the tongue can cause a lot of damage and also do a lot of good as well. Um, it has a lot of impact um, because, uh, you know, by our speech, we make, we express and we communicate and we, um, we, uh, we transfer knowledge from one individual to another. And so the, the tongue does say a lot of things. We build people up, we encourage our children, we, you know, we ad admonish them when they do something wrong, or we do something, you know, we say something that could really hurt somebody as well and really break their spirits. So the tongue, even though it's just very small little thing, it really has, it controls a lot in our world and in our societies. Um, look at the, the politicians and, and the things they say. It's it, this little tongue can really set ablaze and, and cause a lot of uh, provide a lot of material for the news agencies, you know. Um, okay, and then he likens it to a fire. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of inequity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. And he also says in the epistle that, you know, just like a little fire can cause a big forest fire, the same thing, just a few small word, words can, you know, put the air on fire, as it were, uh, because it has a huge impact. Then he likens it to a wild animal, he says, or even worse than a wild animal, really, because he says, for every kind of beast and bird or of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It's like this a wild animal that has venom uh, and poison in it, and it causes a lot of uh, pain and anguish for people. With our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things are not to be so. He later says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And it's consistent, again, with what the gospel says. For St. Matthew says that, or Christ says, for by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. So 
our our speech has a lot of importance. It, it means something, and we should remember that that the words that we say mean something. On in the world of Facebook, you know, unfortunately, we've seen it even during the time of uh, the elections and things, even among our own community, unfortunately, where people will say very cruel things uh, on social media and not expect any kind of accountability to what they say. Uh, they they hurt people a lot. Um, Cyberbullying, for example, with kids, uh, you know, is a big deal, even though it's not with the tongue, but it's, you know, typing, but it's the same kind of thing um, where, you know, it really does hurt people. And, and some kids have even committed suicide because of it. Uh, it is it is a big deal. Um, but we should, you know, in the same way, if we flip it and use our words as an agent of uh, reconstruction of the society around us as a way to bring positivity, as a way to bring encouragement, and uh, especially sharing the message of, of Christ that we all have, right? That in the world, there's so much negativity, and it's all trending towards something terrible. We can be agents out there saying the opposite. We can say positive things. We can remind people that, yeah, it's a terrible thing, but where I'm standing in the Christian faith, we're, we're all good. And we have what is essential for us that uh, gives us the, the, the truly blessed and happy life, uh, irrespective of what's going on in the world. And so our speech can become positive uh, and have that really huge positive impact, or it can be negative and have a really huge negative impact. There's no in-between because that tongue has a lot of impact either way. So let it, let's be proactive and let's have our speech be very positive, just like uh, St. James advises us to. Finally, I just want to make a, a reference that uh, one of the few uh, clear references about the anointing of the sick was um, is in the church for healing both the spiritual and physical ailments. It's one of the seven sacraments of the church. Um, St. James here talks about it to people who he doesn't tell them like he's teaching them something new. He just reminds them of it. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders or priests of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If the people of the time didn't understand what he was saying, be like, what do you, what do you mean grab some oil and anoint them? They knew it. And he was just reminding them. And so this practice was there from the very beginning in the church. Um, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to see that uh, because it, this, this anointing of the sick has all but disappeared in most of Christianity, but it's still in the Coptic Orthodox Church. So finally, he says, good things come from peace for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God and that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace provides the environment that nurtures. Um, I believe it was Socrates that said, peace is the nurturer of children. Peace is the nurturer of children. When you provide a peaceful environment, that's when our thoughts are clear. That's when we make the right decisions. That's when people chime in and also help. Um, but when we're full of wrath and we're trying to force people to, to go in a certain direction, <clears throat> God's righteousness, God's will is not flourishing. Uh, God's grace is not flourishing. Um, the fruits of righteousness does not 
you know, produce in that kind of wrathful environment. But in a peaceful environment, it's like tranquil. That's when God's work occurs. So to the extent that we can make the world around us peaceful, not just for our own sakes, which of course will benefit, but for those around us, it does win God's grace. It does invite God's grace uh, in that environment, uh, that peaceful environment. So remember that so that when, uh, when we're arguing with our uh, spouses, uh, remember that God loves a peaceful house, a house that is full of peace and love, and uh, that wins God's grace. And of course, it, it brings nothing but goodness after that. So that's all I had. Uh, spoke uh, for, let's see here, for about, you know, minutes or so. Um, any questions at all? So I'm, I'm very happy that you guys are able to uh, join this, this journey into the Catholic epistles. I really encourage you to go back and read the epistle of St. James one more time um, with this kind of feedback. And if you can uh, try to see if you can um, embrace these things that he tells us. It is so full of moral teaching that applies to us, very applicable things um, that we encounter every day. So any questions at all or any, anybody want to add anything to that? They say in Zoom, I'm supposed to wait like 15 seconds, which uh, after you ask a question, which seems like eternity as you're waiting. So any questions? All right. And with that, we'll go ahead and end it. Thank you, Winner. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've given us. Please be with us. Help us to open up our hearts and minds to these wonderful epistles that you inspired the holy men of old to write these uh, for our benefit through the intercessions of our Holy Mother, St. Mary, St. Basil the Great, and St. James the Just. Here's one who say with all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God, the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Depart in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. Have a good night, everyone. And we'll see you next week, same time at 8 p.m. Next Tuesday, 8 p.m. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Have a good night.